This is the Hiking Through Life podcast. We've all been gifted a journey called life. Let's see where the journey leads us today. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast. I'm Andy. And I'm Sarah. And on today's journey, we talk with Alex Messenger, who is the author of the book, The 29th Day. His book recently came out just this past November, and I had the opportunity to watch his presentation at the Midwest Mountaineering Expo, where he presented his book and read a few pages from it. And it was just a very descriptive, detailed experience, and it really brought the audience into it, and it felt like we were there. In this episode with him, I think you'll feel like you're there with him too when he describes his experience of being attacked by a grizzly bear. We will have a link to his book in the description of this episode. He details the events of that day during the interview with Sarah. It's kind of crazy just to hear what happened. And it's also interesting to hear what Alex got into in the years following the attack. We hope you enjoy this interview with Alex. And next time you go in the woods, don't forget your bear spray. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast. I met Alex at the Midwest Mountaineering Expo when he was first presenting his book. It came out in November. He is the author of the book, The 29th Day. Alex, can you give us a little bit of background about your experience in the outdoors before you did your trip to Canada? And then we're going to get into the whole trip. Yeah, well, uh, certainly didn't. This wasn't my first trip by any means. (laughs) Um, Before going out on this um, expedition, really, it, my outdoor experiences kind of started when I was a kid. My parents were um, very adventurous folks, and I got to travel with them a lot um, growing up in the Boundary Waters, um, you know, in, in state parks and what have you uh, in Minnesota. Um, but uh, traveling internationally was a big thing, too, with them. So I got to go um see places around the world um some of it's a little bit roughing it because you're out in you know uh less developed countries and um sometimes you know cooking your own food or you know you get to see a lot of different experiences that way um but that was all when i was younger i kept doing that for a long time as well but um as i got older we started to do more uh backcountry trips into the boundary waters And, um, when I was, let's see, what would it have been? 13. Um, I went on my first trip with Minogen, um, which is a Y camp that does wilderness trip based camps. And so that was an eight day session and went into the boundary waters. And it was just kind of a game changer for me because I learned how to efficiently and really effectively, uh, travel in the back country. Um, after that, I kept coming back and going on, ever longer and more intense experiences and trips um, from an eight-day session and then a 21-day and then a 32-day and then this was a uh, 42-day trip in the backcountry. So gradually worked my way up to it and uh, this was kind of the pinnacle trip for me. Yeah, 42 days. That's like, that's major. And (laughs) um, so you went on this trip with, was it seven people? There were six of us total. Okay, there were six of you. And yeah. some of them were at that Midwest Mountaineering Expo when you read your book, weren't they? Yep. Yeah, Dan, our guide, was there, which was really cool. <laughs> yeah. 
So there were six people on this trip. And if I remember correctly, you guys um, all met at Jay Cook State Park for your first night. Yep. So we um, some of a couple of us knew each other and had been on trips before. Um, there were a couple of folks that hadn't met each other before, but uh, we rode up in the bus and got out at uh, Jay Cook State Park and kind of did a refresher whitewater training. Um, so we'd all been on a 32 day trip um, in southern Canada the summer before doing whitewater um, on smaller rivers than we'd be doing this summer. Um, but we went to Jay Cook to brush up on the St. Louis River and um, hone those skills and, and develop some new skills for what would be more intense paddling um, up in northern Canada. So we spent a few days there before making our way to camp to get all packed up and ready to drive north and uh, then fly from the end of the road in Manitoba into the Northwest Territories. Okay. Were you fearful at all at that time before your trip of running into a bear? I mean, was this your first time going into real grizzly territory? Um, I'm trying to think for me personally if I'd been in grizzly territory much before. I don't think I'd spent too much time in grizzly country. Um, you know, it was certainly something that was on our radar. Um, you know, polar bears are something that you worry about when you're in those latitudes. We weren't in an area where polar bears frequent. Um, but we were aware that grizzly bears were something we had to worry about. We uh, talked about bear spray and how to use it, got trained on that. Um, we were also trained on bear poppers, which are these noise deterrents, and um, how to set camp up properly, making sure that, you know, the food's far enough away from the tent and, um, and the, you know, the place where you cook is far enough away from your, where you're sleeping as well. Um, and then also what you're supposed to do when you if you run into a grizzly bear uh, out in the wild, you know, basically with a grizzly bear, you want to diffuse the situation. You want to convince the bear that you're not a threat. Um, that's kind of backwards from a black bear where you want kind of want to assert your um, dominance in a way uh, and convince it that it doesn't want to mess with you. Uh, but with grizzlies, you want to, you know, like I said, diffuse that situation and back away slowly and speak calmly to it and, tell a hay bear, wool bear, and, and just kind of show it that it doesn't have to fight you, that it can just leave you alone. Um, so we went through all that stuff and uh, had that in the back of our minds while we were, while we were out on this, on this adventure. Yeah, I mean, when you say it was only in the back of your mind, that's, I mean, that's pretty bold too, because like, we went to Jasper National Park a few years ago, and I was just constantly worried about grizzlies the whole time because we were on this like extreme backpacking trip, just my husband and I, like 12 miles in by ourselves. And I was constantly thinking about a grizzly bear, constantly had my bear spray with me. So yeah, and that's to... in the Rockies, right? I yeah, the yeah, the Canadian Rockies. Yeah, yeah. So like in high concentration grizzly areas, like like Glacier too, is probably somewhat similar. And it's and I was there just a couple of years ago, and and obviously it's after my experience, but um, yeah, when you're in a high concentration area, it's like the the thing you're thinking about all the time. And the region that we were in is is much more dispersed, and there's a much uh, smaller population of grizzly bears, um, which doesn't mean that uh, you don't need to worry about them, but it's just a different sort of uh, 
spot in your mind from from you know one of those places in the Rockies where they're just everywhere (laughs) yeah yeah everywhere we saw signs of them all over yeah (laughs) luckily never ran into one (laughs) that's good (laughs) yeah just the black bear we saw one black bear (laughs) oh my (laughs) that can be yeah but it was it was like a football field away (laughs) okay good good so (laughs) yeah exactly that's where what you want it to be (laughs) yeah so on this trip um you guys were out there for 45 days you said 42 days. 42 days. Okay. And um, before your bear attack happened, were there any other days where you did come across grizzly bears from afar? We saw grizzlies a couple times before that. Uh, We saw our first one 20 days in um, across a canyon. Um, We saw one the next day, and then I think we saw one more, always far away. And um, they, uh, as soon as they saw us, for the most part, they pretty much turned and turned and ran so um they're on our minds but uh uh you know the situation where um i ended up running into mine was um still a surprise (laughs) yeah yeah and i mean it's from what i remember too like that day it sounds like your whole group went out on their own little day hike and you decided to stay back in your tent and rest a little bit more right yeah, so it was a layover day. So uh, 29 days into the trip, we're on this amazing island on this enormous lake, and and um, everybody else had decided to go to the top of this ridge to explore. We're north of the tree line, so there's no trees anywhere. Um, so visibility is incredibly far, and from the top of this ridge up there, you could probably see 30 miles or more in every direction. Um, so they went up there to explore and I stayed and, and napped for a little while. Um, I guess it ended up being about three hours. I was recently told. Um, and then by the time I woke up, most of them were coming back down the ridge, but I was heading up to that spot, you know, not long after they had vacated it. Um, but I woke up from that nap just with this sudden, uh, inexplicable urge to get to the top of that ridge and, um, jumped out of the tent, threw on all my stuff, walked across the campsite and said bye to the guys that were sitting in the tent and started climbing up this ridge. Um, and all you had with you was your camera, correct? Yeah. Well, I had my camera in a Pelican case, so it's like a 15 pound brick. And then, uh, I had my, I had, I was 17 at the time. So, um, I was about to start my summer or excuse me, I was about to start my senior year of high school and I had with me my summer reading book. So not quite just the camera, <laughs> a book too. So <laughs> not a super useful tool in this situation, but uh, yeah. So um, basically just me though, and walked up the this ridge and met my guide, Dan, um, as he was coming down and we chatted for a couple minutes and told me about this Anukshuk I should go take a look at. And Um, they were going to start dinner. So I climbed up the rest of the way. It took me about 10 minutes to get up there. Then it flattened out to these rolling granite domes. And as I was walking up one of these domes, I didn't know it, but a 600 pound barren ground grizzly bear was walking up the other side of this ridge and we were walking right towards each other. And, uh, we met at the top 30 feet apart, which is a terrible scenario to start a bear encounter in. Um, at that point, you're 
you're just uh, your decision is basically forced. You don't have that opportunity to kind of be like, oh, well, what are you going to do with this? I'll just turn around and and let uh, let that other thing go its merry way um, at 30 feet. It's just it's yeah. Just and I mean, I, so you've close. already like <laughs> locked eyes with it, basically. Yeah, exactly. The bear and I both had the same reaction, which was like, what is this thing out here and what am I looking at? And I flash back to the musk oxen we'd seen and been warned about and suddenly realized that this was actually a grizzly bear and, and just how terrible of a situation that is. So the next instant my brain went back to that training that we'd had. And, you know, I imagine the bear spray that I had, uh, that we had with us that was in the tent, um, that I couldn't deploy. I imagine taking the safety lever off, aiming it and firing it. Um, but so I was the bear spray <laughs> Like, you just left it in the tent. Did it not even cross your mind to bring it with you up that ridge that day? Yeah, it didn't uh, didn't cross my mind to bring with me. Um, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was going to be far away from the group. Um, but obviously, <laughs> that wasn't the case. I always carry bear spray with me, no matter how far I'm going, if I'm going to the bathroom or what have you, whether I'm in a dense grizzly area or a dispersed grizzly area or whatever. Um, so that was definitely a, an important lesson. Um, you know, Murphy's law is that if you're going to need it, you're going to need it when you don't have it. Um, and, uh, that's of course when I needed it. So didn't have the bear spray. All I had was that Pelican case and, and my little pocket knife, which wouldn't have, wouldn't have done anything, but I flash back to, you know, what we were told to do, you know, bear spray aside. And so I backed up slowly and I said, Hey bear, whoa bear, it's okay, bear. And it did a couple of stationary bluff charges and ended up charging at me full speed. And bears can run at, you know, almost 40 miles an hour. And my backing up slowly hadn't increased our 30 foot distance that much. And it's barreling at me and, and, uh, my hay bear and wool bear gradually escalated to, you know, yelling at it. And, um, as it's coming at me, I, I just didn't really <laughs> know what to do at that point other than not run because that's kind of the cardinal rule uh, in a situation like that. You just can't run because it triggers the bear's chase instinct and that can make a, a bad situation worse. So, But it's, it's pretty much the only thing that you want to do. You just want to get out of that situation. Um, so it took a lot of willpower to, to not do that. Yeah, and, yeah, I can imagine so. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. So as it's coming at me, um, when it's five or ten feet from me, I can feel the ground shaking from its paws as it's hitting the the ground. And uh, it's the only time I'll throw my camera, but it's the only time I throw my and hit something it was supposed to because I was a terrible shot. But I threw my camera underhand with enough force to hit the bear, or I hit the bear square in the nose with enough force to turn its head all the way to the side. Uh, so I couldn't see where I was for a couple of its steps. The camera case went flying over its shoulder, and I was able to jump out of the way and dodge it on that first pass, uh, bullfighting style, and it missed me. And as soon as it realized it missed me, it turned around and came at me again. And um, the speed with which it changed direction was just absolutely stunning and terrifying. It was just instantaneous. And it was at me again, and I jumped out of the way again and was able to dodge it um, that second time. 
So I was able to do that a couple more times where it came at me and I jumped out of the way at the last moment. And then uh, each time we got closer and closer and the next time it came at me, it swung at my, or it uh, bit at my leg and I pulled my leg out of the way and it snapped shut right next to it. And then it reached up with its paw and hit me across the face, um, which is what the grizzly bear uses to take down caribou and muskox and it's a really, really powerful swipe. And with people, it'll take off the skin from their face. It'll uh, stun them, knock them out, break their neck, or kill them. Um, it's just a, a huge amount of force. And it, uh, it, was, it was like I was a bug in the air, and it was just swatting me. And uh, my head whipped to the side, and I went flying to the side. And at this point, I was pretty sure that I was about to die um, because it was just such a, so much force that this bear had. And there was just nothing that I could do as this, you know, little 17 year old kid. And, um, it was just a terrible feeling and I'm flying to the side from that swipe. And then with that same pot throws me to the ground, hard on my tailbone and its heads right at my leg. And people are like, so did the adrenaline rush take care of the pain? Like, no, I felt its teeth go in both sides of my leg, and then I blacked out. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, that, whew, you just, like, took me into that whole story. Like, that was so descriptive. And, I mean, you've written a whole book about it, so, I mean, it's clear that you've thought this through very, very much. So you blacked out, but but then you walked back to the campsite and... People said you were doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I so I regained consciousness, and um, the bear is still there, so I waited until it was gone and played dead. How long did it take the bear to go away after you regained your consciousness? Um, well, when I came to, it was in the process of leaving. It was going away at a trot, but it was checking me out the whole time to see what I was doing, if I was getting up or if I was staying down. Because at and that point, it probably thought you were dead. Right. Yeah. And dead, or at least I was a threat. And once that threat was eliminated, it wanted to get out of there. So um, I didn't want to dissuade it of that notion. So I just stayed down and, and watched out of the corner of my eye um, and let it leave. And then, you know, that was probably, I don't know less than a minute of it retreating, but I waited for it to go all the way back over the ridge so that if I stood up completely, it wouldn't be able to see me. And that's when I got up and started heading back. So, and when I, when I came to my adrenaline was just going, uh, like crazy and it was masking the pain quite a, quite a bit. Um, so I was able to make that run back to camp. Um, but by the time I got back down there, uh, I couldn't move my leg anymore with my leg muscles. So I was moving it with my arms to get myself down the last bit of the ridge. And, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> considering what had happened, I was, I was doing pretty good because, <laughs> uh, the bite had missed my femoral artery by a quarter inch, um, which would have been, would have been it. I would have bled out on the way back to camp if I'd gotten that far. Um, so, yeah, that was the main injury was the bite and that puncture wound right next to the femoral artery. And then I had a few um, tooth marks around the rest of my leg that didn't actually break the skin somehow. They were just really bad compression wounds. 
Um, I had scrapes and bruises all over. I had. Yeah, uh, I remember you describing. <laughs> I remember you describing when the paw hit your face. You described it as just like a wood plank, like a four by four, just whacking you in the face. Yeah, it was just. It was like exactly a, a piece of wood like wrapped in leather just on a hydraulic arm it was just just so much force and it it hit me and I just had no resistance to it whatsoever <laughs> just like I said a fly in the air just getting swatted out <laughs> yeah. oh. so you managed to get back to camp where the rest of your group was and and then how'd that play out? What was the group's reaction? Did they call for help right away? Yeah, so the group's reaction when I first got to the top of the ridge was, uh, you can't joke about this. <laughs> Are you joking? And uh, with a few choice words, I informed them I was not joking. And um, then... Uh, you know, Dan, the guide, he's a wilderness first responder. And one of the big things is, you know, um, making sure that there's no longer a threat, uh, that the scene is safe. And um, so he was really concerned about where was the bear now or which direction was it going. Um, and once we confirmed that it was going in the opposite direction last time I'd seen, um, and this is all while I'm running down the hill, uh, we switched to the medical stuff. I'm like, he's going to know, he's going to need to know where I'm injured and, and what's going on. So I'm running down. I'm like, I got attacked by a bear and I got hit in the face and I got bit in the thigh and there's blood on my foot for some reason. And I don't know why. Cause I had Chacos on, I had my sandals <laughs> on <laughs> and my, my other foot was bloodied. And I was just like, I have no idea where that blood's coming from. Maybe I've got, you know, this one distracting injury and there's this other terrible one that I'm not even aware of. Um, but that was something to figure out once I got to the bottom. So once I did get to the bottom of the ridge, um, you know, everybody kind of had exploded out of the tent and was starting to get, you know, bear spray and bear poppers and first aid kit and the satellite phone and um, everything that we might need in this situation. And Dan came up to meet me and started doing medical stuff right away. And, you know, he's checking for immediate life threats and then going through a full head to toe exam to see what's all going on. And um, so he found, you know, that bleed on the leg, which was controlled really well with direct pressure. Um, the other the other scrapes and bruises were all pretty minor um, compared to the mechanism of injury, which was grizzly bear attack, <laughs> which can, you know, there's enough force in that in in the grizzly bear's jaw to basically sever your leg and um, take out huge chunks of flesh. So um, I was incredibly lucky that it was basically just a, a single contact bite um, as the main injury. So we got that stabilized um, and then went to um, the sat phone to call in and and kind of see what our options were um, and figure out our next steps. And, you know, at this point, we're a thousand miles north of the U.S.-Canadian border out in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, we probably had more than 100 miles of paddling before we could get to this tiny town at the end of our route called Baker Lake. Um, and it's the only town around for I don't know how many miles, but <laughs> a really long distance. Um, and when we called in, we found out that basically a helicopter wasn't available. And at that point... Um, you know, the options are, are pretty limited. You know, you're uh, calling in um, 
some pretty significant military assets, um, potentially putting in danger, you know, folks from from those uh, organizations, uh, potentially even, you know, people in our own group, but, uh, uh, you know, with different types of extrication scenarios. So um, it was, we had to weigh these options and kind of decide what to do next. So um, it pointed towards us, you know, working on self-rescuing and making our way downriver um, to Baker Lake and getting closer to there and, and trying to trying to get there as quickly as possible. Sure. And so. well, at that time, I mean, I can't imagine you were in any condition to paddle. I suppose your arms were, were still decent. It was basically your legs, you said. So were you, were you able to paddle with them? I was, yeah. So we, that was, this happened in the evening on July 31st. And then, um, so the next day, um, was when we were first able to leave the island and I was able to paddle, which was really uh, exciting for me. And it wasn't painful or anything, um, which is really surprising. But, um, you know, if this had been a backpacking trip, this would have been a different situation for sure. Cause, uh, that's the way you get around. Um, you know, with, with the type of paddling that we were doing, um, which included whitewater, um, there was very little walking that had to happen the rest of the trip before we could get to Baker Lake. So, um, that was really fortunate too. Um, so yeah, I was, I was able to paddle and, and, um, that in itself was really (laughs) empowering. Well, yeah. And I mean, were you still just like kind of shooken up at all from the bear attack the day before, or were you pretty, pretty relaxed at this point? I was definitely still shaken up. Um, you know, the next day I was basically seeing bears in every boulder, uh, (laughs) and imagining them doing things that bears don't do, like, um, coming across the water and attacking us in our canoes and things that are just totally irrational, but, um, you know, not really (laughs) under my control at that point. Um, but that gradually ebbed and, um, you know, the guys were really supportive and, and, uh, you know, I think helped, helped with that immediate, um, uh, mental healing, I guess, um, while we were out on trail. So. Sure. I mean, um, I remember there was also even like a picture that you showed and you just had this like really big smile on your face while they were doing some medical work on you. And I mean, at that (laughs) point you were probably just grateful that you were alive. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was incredibly grateful to be alive. I just, um, I had this huge smile on my face, like you said, because I just had been so sure that I was about to die um, for that to not be the case and to be um, doing pretty well was was very exciting. So (laughs) it was hard to get that smile off my face. So you guys got in and you started paddling. And then did you eventually get to a place where a helicopter could come meet you? Yeah, so eventually um, we made our way down to... 30 mile lake. And, um, by that point we'd been treating the wound and, and, um, we'd been treating it with some antibiotics. Um, and it started to, um, kind of shrug off the effects of those antibiotics. And, um, that was really the trigger point for the helicopter. And at that point it was available, um, which was really good. And we were out of a storm that, that had uh, socked us in for a couple of days. So, um, 
got to that spot and the helicopter was able to come and pick me up. And um, one of the other guys from the group went with me um, to make sure that I wasn't alone and that I had, you know, someone to <laughs> support me and take care of all the logistics and um, and make sure that I was that I was safe and everything. Um, but got flown to Baker Lake and got my first um, exposure to, you know, modern medic modern medical facilities there um and spent about 12 hours in baker lake getting antibiotics and doing interviews with the rcmp and with the game warden and um and then they didn't have enough supplies to maintain my care so they um ended up sending me down to winnipeg um via commercial flight the next morning so flew down there and then and then got the rest of my antibiotics and uh, and so then at that point that sounds like it was three days after the actual attack happened it was about five days okay five days after the actual attack. a little bit longer (laughs) yeah so we were managing the wound um you know with lots of irrigation and cleaning and everything and and a puncture wound is a particularly difficult um, wound to take care of. And, and that's, you know, ultimately what ended up uh, leading to it getting infected. And, and then, like I said, the antibiotics, um, that we were using, it ended up growing resistant to it. So. Wow. I mean, that's, I would, if I were you, I would just think about this every single day that like, like you must reflect on this daily, the fact that this happened to you. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty wild. I mean, um, Luckily, I don't reflect on it daily. I, okay. I, uh, <laughs> um, you know, certainly for a long time, you know, this happened in 2005. So at this point, it's 14 and a half years later. And um, and I've, I've had the opportunity to, you know, put a lot of perspective um, into the experience. And, um, you know, I think about it. Uh, I think about it pretty much every day. My leg is sore because there's muscle you know that's permanently damaged and missing and some significant scarring and things um but uh the possibilities of of you know significant ptsd and things like that i feel really fortunate um that you know i've come out as well as i did and i had the support that i needed you know immediately and then through the years afterwards uh to come out to come out well so it's a really fortunate situation yeah, so. a really positive outlook to have on it. And I think um, I remember listening in another one of your interviews. I think this was with, um, gosh, I can't remember who it was with, but you said, or maybe it was a, just like an article that I read where you quoted, um, I love the idea that the bear is able to continue to live, that they didn't go out and kill the bear. Right. Because, you know, some people might just say, oh, I really want this bear killed. This bear tried to kill me. Go get it. But I love that perspective that this is its habitat. This is its natural home. It's just living its cycle. Right. Yeah. I mean, this bear did um, exactly what a bear does. (laughs) It was doing nothing abnormal. um, And, you know, it could have done a lot worse to me. so there's a lot of appreciation for it, you know, whether that was its intention or, or not. I'm, I'm thankful that it, <laughs> it didn't do worse to me. And, um, you know, the game warden actually 
um, did go looking for it because they wanted to find out basically if this was a problem bear. Um, so they went out to that island and they they um, tried to find it. And if they found it, they were going to put one of their guys down and see what it did, how it reacted to him. And um, they never found the bear. So uh, if they had found it, I don't know exactly what they would have done. Um, you know, this potential that they could have they could have ended up, you know, destroying it or something. Um, and I'm glad that they didn't have to make that decision and that the bear was able to keep on keep on going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So after this attack, like how long after that were you comfortable to go out on a hiking trail again? Even just a hiking trail where there's only black bears in Minnesota, per se. How long did that take? Yeah, um, to be comfortable took a while. <laughs> the first time I did go on a trail was uh, later that month. Um, we went to a backcountry cabin of a friend of ours that's near Ely, and um, that was really hard. <laughs> but uh, I gradually, you know, I, I, I controlled what I could. I made sure that I was always carrying my bear spray. Um, my family was uh, supportive of, of the things that I needed to do to get back out there. You know, so when we went to the Boundary Waters the next summer, I probably looked a bit more like Rambo than a, than a canoe camper. Um, and, uh, they were, you know, <laughs> tolerant of that and, uh, just gradually making my way back out there, um, over the years really, uh, is what, is what it took. And, um, I don't know exactly when, you know, that, that kind of switch happened. Um, yeah, you know, it was a very conscious thing to go back out there and it was just a, a, an iterative process of gradually building up that comfort and, um, and slowly realizing that, you know, every, every branch breaking and, and twig snapping and, uh, rustle of leaves is not something that you have to be terrified of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a process to get back out there. And and I think that's so empowering how you took this experience and you decided to go be a wilderness guide eventually. Um, yeah. how many how many years after that experience did you pursue this career? I think that or was Or are you still doing that? I don't still do it. No. Um I transitioned to um a little bit more stable <laughs> lifestyle. Um so I do marketing these days. Um, I've been doing that for the last number of years here in Duluth. Um, okay. So yeah, when I first went and worked into the in the woods again was probably about five years after it happened. Um, so I actually went back to camp to work there, um, to the same camp, uh, and did wilderness. Or I worked as an in in camp staff for a year and then uh, as a wilderness guide for a couple of years after that before um, I got a job in Ely, Minnesota, working with a photographer there. Um, so that's kind of when I transitioned less into the woods and, and more into an, an office for my day-to-day. -day and and um, most of my woods time was, was photography-related or, you know, personal pursuits. Okay, okay. So you did the wilderness guide. And then was there any part of just being a search and rescue operator separate from the wilderness guide at all? Or did yeah, I that was separate. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I worked in the, in the field for those few years. And then, um, when I got back into, 
into town, I guess. Um, you know, it felt like I, for one, had a bunch of skills and experience that I wanted to put to good use. And, and um, you know, I, I had experienced what uh, effect it can have on people when you're helping them in a, you know, really stressful situation and learned about uh, the St. Louis County Rescue Squad, which is the search and rescue organization um, where I was living then in Ely and, and where I'm living now in Duluth. And, um, you know, started asking questions about that and ended up, you know, going to some meetings to learn about it. And it just was uh, an awesome fit. And uh, it's an all volunteer organization um, with a bunch of really talented folks all throughout northern Minnesota um, responding to Boundary Waters calls, um, to calls on Lake Superior, um, car accidents, you know, all throughout the area missing people, um, you know, helping, helping reunite families and, um, bring, you know, loved ones back after they've passed away. And, and it's a really important, um, important job and important thing to, to do for people. Um, so I've been able to do that for about six years now. Um, and that's really fulfilling and exciting way to get out into the woods <laughs> kind of randomly. Yeah. So that's, so, and you're still involved in that. Yeah. Okay. I am. Yep. Yeah. So I'm, I'm on leave right now because we just had our uh, first child this fall. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. It's really exciting. Um, But uh, that, that had to go on pause for a little while while we got our feet back under us. Have you ever run into any extreme situations when you were being a first responder? Like, did you ever have to help someone with a bear attack? (laughs) <laughs> not a bear attack. <laughs> That's pretty rare. Um, yeah. You know, in terms of of uh, what you're dealing with, the training is such that it's not like, oh, I know how to deal with a bear attack. I know how to deal with, a, um, you know, something that's different, but pigeonholed. You know, the training is, is like, this is what you're seeing. This is how you treat, you know, bleeds and airway problems and um, other different traumas or, or medical situations and things like that. So, um, it's, it's applicable in tons of different situations. Um, as to the things that I've dealt with, um, you know, through the rescue squad, I've, I've seen a lot of different things, um, you know, and, and we're, we're the reactionary force. We're going in when people are, uh, after something bad's happened. Um, you know, when you're in the role of, guide or facilitator or something like that you know it's all on the risk management side um where you're wanting to you know determine ways that you can keep something from happening and to decrease those risks and to um make you better better able to respond to something if it's if it should happen through things like having the right equipment um having the right training and um having the right people in there or the right mindset on you know making sure that everyone's being as safe as they can be. So, yeah. So you, after this whole experience, you wrote this book, the 29th day. And I read somewhere that you wanted to wait until you matured a little bit to write this book. But did you have the idea in your mind shortly after the attack that you wanted to write this book? Yeah, I, uh, I've wanted to write a book since I was, pretty young um my parents were both in academia and my mom um co-authored and um served as editor 
um, compilation editor for a number of books. So um, the publishing gene uh, is kind of uh, in in my family. Um, so I had that idea for a long time, but I never really had the idea for what the content, what the story should be. Um, and then this story kind of landed in my lap, <laughs> uh, so to speak. And once I knew that I was going to be okay, um, that's when I started to kind of think, okay, this at some point could be a book or something to that effect. And uh, like you mentioned, I I decided to wait. Um, like you said, I wanted to be more mature and it's also an experience the, the baritech experience was something that i wanted to kind of figure out i wanted to be able to put my arms around it and you know wrap it up and say this is what this whole thing means and eventually i um i did mature enough to realize that i could spend my whole life waiting to figure everything out and never figure it out never make this book and that's when I decided to really start working on it in earnest at that point. So, but uh, in some ways, I started the book at the beginning of the trip because I kept a really detailed journal. So, um, you know, all that traveling with my parents as a kid um, taught me th the value of journaling. So, so journaling this, is that's just something you've always done. Always done when I'm on an, uh, a trip. Um, I don't journal like day to day um, kind of stuff, but uh, when I'm traveling, I try to journal and it's a lot of work, um, but it's very worthwhile. And in this case was incredibly worthwhile because I had this source document that was incredibly robust. And, um, you know, with the time that elapsed between the trip itself and, and writing the book, um, having that journal brought back all of the memories for me. And um, that was really, really important when it came time to write. Yeah, yeah, because there's a, I mean, that's a long trip you went on. So I yeah. can only imagine all the details that you were saving. So this yeah. happened, the trip happened when you were 17. Like, at what age did you start writing the book? So, uh, what age was I? I'm trying to do the math. Well, I suppose, yeah, like, what, at what age were you when you're like, I'm for sure going to set, this is going to be the book I'm going to write that I've been dreaming about. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's also kind of gradual, the transitions from one step to the next. Um, it's hard to pinpoint it exactly. Um, and there was a lot of background work that I did on it. I, I knew that I was going to write it, you know, when I was almost 18. <laughs> um, and I knew that there were a couple of things that I could work on on it that didn't require me to have some epiphany. So I started like transcribing my journal and, and turning um, that process into this enormous source document um, within like two years of the event um, and just kind of did a lot of that kind of putsy background work on it um, for probably about five years or so, four or five years. And then um, I really started working in earnest on the book at that point, which was about six years ago. Um, if the numbers don't quite add up, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, no worries. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it took me about three years to to um, to write the book. And that's all in, in my spare time while working full time. Um, and then about three years to edit and publish it. 
after that. Okay. Because, so. yeah, it just got published in November, correct? Yep, November Because that's when you started doing all of your going to, like, the Midwest Mountaineering Expo and yep. all the other places you've gone to present it. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's a very new book. <laughs> It's been in the works for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that auditorium at Midwest Mountaineering was jam-packed. I mean, there was standing room only. I was like way in the back. <laughs> I mean, it was jam-packed. So yeah. that was an awesome turnout. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, it was it was really humbling. And, you know, I think there'd been good press about it in the Star Tribune and everything uh, prior to that. So um, it was really, really cool to have that many people. I think there were... Um, 130 or 150 people 130 sounds more reasonable <laughs> in a yeah. not not super big auditorium <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then you also started recording an audiobook is that correct or is that already released that's already already released yeah so um i recorded the audiobook um at the end of the summer and actually finished recording that uh the day before my son was born. <laughs> Just in time. Just in time. Because then yeah. you had no time, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, that was really exciting. That was an awesome bookend uh, to this whole process of creating the book because, um, you know, reading a book for audio is, is um, you have to kind of experience it as you do it. So I got to have this this experience, just this encapsulated time of reading the book and and kind of going back and going back through everything um yeah and so. I remember reading that there was like you had to kind of try out to be <laughs> the reader for your own book I I can't <laughs> I kind of <laughs> laughed at that I thought I mean you're the author of the book why can't you be the reader <laughs> yeah yeah I mean you know I suppose that's that's indicative of good quality control which is good <laughs> you know they're not just gonna let um anybody read it I suppose if I uh uh was really a challenge to listen to <laughs> they would have said thanks we're gonna have a professional actor do it <laughs> which yeah. which would have been okay but I was really excited to have the opportunity to um try out and then ultimately the opportunity to be the narrator for it um which is really cool so yeah you can find that on audible um and download it right now and then I think it will be on other platforms um, early this year. Awesome. Other platforms besides Audible. Awesome. I haven't even read the book, shocking enough. I am interviewing about the book, but I haven't even read it. But it is on my <laughs> list of two reads for the year. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, download it and, you know, read it or listen to it while you're driving up north and <laughs> getting yeah. the Northwoods mindset. Yeah. And then, like. <laughs> get myself paranoid about a bear <laughs> <laughs> there's no grizzlies in minnesota not that i've this is heard true <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um it looks like photography is also a big hobby of yours and it was a hobby when you were 17 and had the camera with you during the bear attack yep. um so was that recently a new hobby at age 17 or is that something that's always been a hobby through your travels? Um, it's not always been a hobby, but it's been one of my long, longest standing hobbies. Um, you know, I got into photography when I was really young and I was shooting film um, and it was kind of a way to visually journal uh, these cool places that we were going. And then um, when I was, I think, a freshman in high school, 
um, I got interested in it um, more uh, with more focus. And I really wanted to get a film SLR. And my parents were like, well, there's this new digital thing you should think of. And they kind of convinced me to get one of these very first digital cameras. Um, and that was really important. And it just like kickstarted my um, my photography because of that instant feedback, um, being able to see everything and, and adapt really quickly as opposed to having to wait for the film and everything. Um, but from then on, it was just um, something that, grew almost exponentially for me um in terms of interest and equipment and skills and everything and um after high school i i turned that into kind of my second job and it's been it's been my uh my second job for since then basically so um i dabble in a lot of different things but my uh main focus is like outdoor and travel adventure photography um coupled with product photography usually in those situations. I saw that there was a lot of world travel photography on there. You guys have been to some pretty awesome places. Do you have a favorite place you visited? That's a tough one. Um, <laughs> my favorite place I visited pretty much any national park. I love national parks. Um, they're just, uh, yeah, they're super cool. Um, so Voyager national park, glacier national park, and then boundary waters. Um, yeah, so that's like the nature side of things. And then um, one of my favorite places to travel, and I've had the opportunity to go there a couple times in the last um, number of years, is is France. Um, it's just such a cool place um, and a great combo of amazing photo opportunities, obviously a lot, generally a lot more urban, um, the way that we travel when we're in Europe. But, uh, you know combining that with the culture and the food, it's just a really cool experience. So, um, but yeah, there's so many cool places. <laughs> yeah. And so when you go to these places, are you going specifically on photography trips or are they more like trips for pleasure and you're just taking some photos along the way and then selling them to magazines? Yeah, it's more the latter. So when I'm, um, shooting, I'm typically shooting stock photography for, for um, basically outdoor lifestyle um, brands or magazines. Um, so we think of these really cool opportunity or uh, itineraries and, and places that we want to go and then um, have a ton of fun. And I put in a lot of work <laughs> uh, into um, making good photo opportunities while we're doing these amazing things. Um, so... <laughs> Sometimes, uh, you know, to the chagrin of my travel mates who are like, oh, my gosh, you're stopping again. or You're carrying so much stuff um, or what have you. But uh, it's always worth it to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you don't have like a team you do that with. It's just you for the photography. Right. Yeah, it's just me. Um, you know, my team would be my family. My wife is uh, <laughs> a very good sport about standing in as a model or, or uh, being willing to click the shutter and have me as the model or what have you. Um, but I always like to keep it pretty lean like that. Um, even when I'm working with other people, you know, I, I, um, I tend to move a little bit faster and I don't like to set everything up and be stuck on the tripod and stuck with all these lights and everything, even though I do like to do off camera lighting, but, um, I like to, um, 
go with the flow and and kind of capture things as they are a bit more than um than getting hampered down with those different uh those different things so makes it a bit harder sometimes but makes the experience a little bit more enjoyable <laughs> yeah yeah photography is definitely i mean you need a good eye for it and you need patience no doubt about that <laughs> yeah and you need to be willing to carry the extra stuff or like run in front of everybody that you're with so you can get a photo of them or um deal with them you know dealing with you making them wait <laughs> or yeah. get up early or stay up late <laughs> so, yeah yeah i remember when we were happen. at when we were at Yellowstone National Park this summer, we got up at like 5 a.m. to mm-hmm. watch um, like the bears and the wolves. Just like it was just like crazy how much was going on down in one of these valleys. Oh, cool. And I mean, there was probably like 40 professional photographers set up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's intense with the huge lenses and everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're not photographers, but we like one of the photographers was letting us just borrow his his lens to look through it like a microscope. <laughs> yeah. To watch what was going on with the animals down there. Yeah. Like, holy crap, you can see really well. <laughs> yeah, it was nuts. It was actually like three wolves eating a carcass of wow. a bear. Oh, my. It was. Yeah, <laughs> it was wild. really crazy. Um, is there any upcoming readings that you have at any upcoming bookstores soon? Um, I've got kind of a, a slow time right now, which was somewhat intentional to build in a little bit of, uh, expansion room. <laughs> yeah. Build in uh, some after, family time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, but I'm picking it up, um, later in the spring and I'll be doing some events in, uh, North Central Minnesota, and other other ones that are in the works but haven't been completely nailed down yet. So, but I'll have all of them listed on my website, alexmessenger.com. There's an events tab um, that I populate with all of the book-related events that I have going on. So, that will be up to date. Perfect. And is that the best place for people to get in touch with you on their website? Yep, alexmessenger.com. Or you can find me on most of the social spaces: uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at a messenger photo. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. This has been awesome, super informative. And I hope that people want to go read the book now, the 29th day. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sarah. This has been fun. Doing this interview with Alex was a really good reminder that we can't let ourselves live in fear. I think during the interview, I asked him like three times, so you didn't even think about bringing that bear spray with you? Like, (laughs) he probably thought I was starting to get a little crazy. But you can't live in fear. You just have to go out there and go for it. And I think his story is a true example of that. And then to take it and go be a wilderness guide and write a book out of it is just super awesome that he took this like tragic event and turn it into something so great yeah and also being part of a search and rescue operation after the fact too and dedicating his time to helping others that may fall into a similar situation as him or worse yeah it's like when you're put in a situation and have lived it yourself that's when you can help people the most 
And I just kept thinking back to our trip in Jasper National Park for our honeymoon when we were in grizzly territory. And I was living in fear that entire trip. I constantly had bear spray on me. And did we ever see a grizzly bear? No. We saw a black bear, but we never saw a grizzly bear. But I was living in fear and I let it affect my overall experience on that trip. Yeah, you got very emotional one night because you were so fearful that there might be a chance that a bear could come into our camp. Exactly. And it's all just in your mind and you just can't let your mind play those games with you. (laughs) Yeah. So if you want to read more details of his encounter and that day, that trip, go check out his book, The 29th Day. We have a link to the book on Amazon in the description of this episode. So go purchase that book. And don't forget to purchase your bear spray. And make sure to save the date, April 24th to 26th of 2020, for the Midwest Mountaineering Expo, the Spring Expo. And you can see some really awesome presentations like Alex's, and they're all free. The Midwest Mountaineering Expo is an awesome experience, and it allows you to hear stories like Alex's during those presentations as well as meet fellow outdoor enthusiasts. Yeah, we make sure to put it on our calendar every year, and it has never disappointed us. So get out there, and thanks for listening. We love sharing these stories with you through the Hiking Through Life podcast, and we're so grateful that you listen to this podcast. If you'd like to support the Hiking Through Life podcast further, we have these amazing new t-shirts and water bottles. The t-shirts come in four colors, and the water bottles are perfect for trails, adventuring, or daily use. Consider checking them out at hikingthroughlife.net slash shop. Use the code podcast and receive 10% off your first order. You've been listening to the Hiking Through Life podcast. Peace, love, and hike through life.